Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Our guest today on the Beeson Podcast is Dr. Robert Lewis Wilkin. He is the William R. Keenan Professor Emeritus of the History of Christianity at the University of Virginia. He's also a good friend and collaborator with me in the work of evangelicals and Catholics together. He was brought up a Lutheran. He's now a Catholic, a major scholar of Christian history, written many books, uh, Christians as the Romans Saw Them, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, The First Thousand Years, many others a former president of the American Academy of Religion, and his his work is just renowned all over the world and edifies uh, the scholarly guild, new insights, but also the people of God. He's a churchly theologian. So, Robert, welcome to this podcast. It's a pleasure. Now, let's begin. I've mentioned your work in church history. I think you were a student of Yaroslav Pelikan. Isn't that right? I was indeed. He was at the University of Chicago, and I went there in the fall of 1960 to study early church, the church fathers with him. So for two years, I was able to study with him, and actually he was the first to to, to give me an idea that would eventually become my dissertation. He left, though, after two years and went to Yale, but over the years we kept in very close touch, especially in his last year and months i was close to him went up to to visit him a few de- few weeks before his death so he he's been a mentor and he's been a, a model of what a christian scholar can be and a churchman uh, i mean he was the son of a slovak lutheran pastor and uh, eventually because of his slovak backgrounds is uh, eastern european he he was received into the orthodox church one thing in common I see between you and uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, great historians, but he also wrote extremely well. He was a great writer, and so are you. Not every historian can write well, but that's a gift that you have, and it shows up uh, in all of your writing. So he became Orthodox, as you say, toward the end of his life. Uh, you became a Roman Catholic. You taught for a while at Notre Dame, didn't you? I did. I was there for 13 years in the uh, 70s and then the 80s, and that was for me a very, very uh, formative period because I really began to see Catholicism at at close hand and uh, to respect what it represented. And one of the things that I, I still remember is some of my students were religious women, that is, sisters in, in various religious communities. And I think they, more than anybody else, made an impression on me and made me realize there was something about Catholicism that Lutheranism uh, and Protestantism did not have, that is, uh, religious or monastic communities, and uh, they are an enrichment to the life of the of the laity. You know, it's one of the things that uh, we lopped off at the Reformation, I think to our detriment in many ways. Oh, I no question about that. I think that was most unfortunate and... Uh, and it's interesting, in the book, as you will recall, I, uh, one of my most important uh, uh, sources of information was uh, a, a community of Franciscan sisters in the city of Nuremberg who were, um, they 
basically their community was shut down by the new Lutheran magistrates. And the abbess of the community, a woman named Caritas Pirkheimer, wrote a diary and detailed almost week by week what they were actually doing. And in that, she then says that they will not allow us to confess our faith freely and force us to go against our conscience, and we're not going to do that. So it's um, a good um, bit of evidence to show that conscience is not something, as some people think, that arose during the Reformation, and it is not about the right of private judgment. It's about obedience to God. Excellent. Well, we're talking about your book, your new book called Liberty in the Things of God, The Christian Origins of Religious Freedom. Just came out this year, 2019, from Yale University Press. Why did you write this book? Well, um, as is often the case, the uh, book develops gradually and incrementally. About seven or eight, nine, ten years ago, because religious freedom was so much in the air, and I began to get more interested, and I, I noticed in my reading of the Church Fathers that several writers, a man by the name of Tertullian, living in Carthage, which is present-day uh, um, Algeria, or Tunis, excuse me, not Algeria, and uh, another man, Lactantius, who was in the 4th century, wrote some documents and some paragraphs that say that religion cannot be coerced. And no one else had really put it that way. There had been accommodations to religious dissidents, but but no one had really set down a kind of a principle. Well, I got interested in that, but then to my uh, delight, uh, I discovered that these writings from the early church resurfaced in the 16th century during the Reformation, and they are used then by defenders of liberty of conscience and religious freedom to defend themselves against Christians who were persecuting Christians. And so they have a kind of a second life, um, uh, probably the, the earliest and in some ways uh, uh, very significant. The author Sebastian Castellio, middle of the 16th century, Here's another side of John Calvin. We we didn't talk about Calvin, but Calvin actually was complicitous in the execution of a man by the name of Servetus, who was he was a heretic. He he didn't believe in the Holy Trinity and other classical Christian doctrines. And Castellio wrote a treatise defending uh, Servetus, criticizing Calvin and other leaders. And in that treatise titled, uh, you know, Whether Heretics Should Be Punished or Persecuted or, or, or Executed, um, he quotes a long passage from this 4th century Christian writer, Lactantius, in support of his argument. And that's the first instance that I know of, but then other writers, uh, some of the um, English Baptists, Roger Williams, for example, quotes Tertullian, um, and so these documents then become a, a source of ideas and inspiration to 16th and 17th century writers that allow them to formulate their own arguments in terms of their own time 
to defend uh, religious dissenters. Um, yeah, you picked up on uh, the Calvin story, and of course you mentioned Servetus, which is a, a dark stain, let us say, against Calvin. There's, you know, I tell people Calvin should have known better, because elsewhere <laughs> he says things about religious freedom that point in a different direction. And you talk about this, so you have a chapter on Calvin uh, and Servetus. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right, and, and uh, he should have known better, but but the the other thing that um, moderns cannot understand is that everyone assumed, everyone assumed that you could not have a peaceful and stable society if there were not one religion that everybody practiced. Mm. So Calvin, even though he says that there are these two realms, he he had to deal with the realities of 16th century social and communal life, and everybody else did. They simply could not conceive that there could be religious associations, we would call them churches, who practiced a different form of Christianity than that which was established and official in the city. And so you have to give them a lot of, um, I think, a lot of space and, and not, I think, be too harsh on them. But Calvin knew that. He knew he was inconsistent. And he, he, he admits that at, at, at one point in his institutes. Um, and then others had the same issue. This was the big issue in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. As I observed there, John Cotton, who was really the the spiritual head of the community, and he got into a controversy with Roger Williams. And Cotton basically takes one aspect of John Calvin, namely there should be one public religion, and Roger Williams takes the other, that there must be a distinction between the civil and the religious uh, arms of society. You know, there's, there was another distinction that Williams made uh, related to the Ten Commandments. The first and yeah, well, second. Yeah, that, that phrase, in fact, I have a, the, the chapter on Calvin is called Custodians of Both Tables. And what, what they, they distinguish was the first two or three, depending on how you enumerate them, which have to do with the worship of God, and then the others, which have to do with uh, behavior, moral behavior, adultery, stealing, this kind of thing. And so the argument was, and what William said, is that the second table, which dealt with behavior and moral questions, that was the responsibility of civil government, and the worship of God was a responsibility of the religious communities. But it was very hard to maintain that uh, in 16th and 17th century Europe. Very hard to maintain it. I think one of the great contributions you've made in this book is to challenge maybe what's the reigning paradigm of thinking about religious freedom uh, as a product of enlightenment, consciousness, modern thinking, individual uh, rights. And you show that it's grounded in, well, the scriptures, actually, and the early church, uh, not consistently, not everywhere, of course, but that this is something that was retrieved in a way in the time of the Reformation and afterward. Well, that's, of course, the main point of the book. As recently as six weeks ago, a very uh, prominent political commentator and historian named Robert Kagan had an op-ed column in the Washington Post in which he said that it was not until the Enlightenment that liberty of conscience was recognized. Mm. And I was astounded because yeah. that's what everybody's been saying for, for decades. But 
that he simply had no clue as to another way of viewing things. And so the book is an attempt to show, and also what also goes along with that is that Christianity is inescapably intolerant and prone to violence. And as long as Christianity was the inspiration for the societies of the West and the new uh, national uh, communities after the Reformation, there could be no hope of liberty of conscience or freedom of religion. So that's really what the book is about, and what I try to show is that even a thinker such as Locke, who is a major Enlightenment thinker, and the point, the, the person to whom people turn when they want to speak about religious freedom, Locke is basically working with Christian ideas that he uh, received through the writings and the, that he had been reading and his contemporaries. Uh, one in particular, I think, was very significant, John Owen, who was a uh, dissident separatist in, in 17th century England. And Locke then was read by Madison and by Jefferson, and what he says is basically what Christians have been saying for the last 100 years, mm-hmm. 150 yeah. years. Now, you know, I'm I'm a Baptist. Uh, in fact, I'm a Southern Baptist, uh, which may be worse in some people's mind. But um, you you give a you give a good credence to the Baptist contribution to religious freedom in this book. I do indeed, and uh, everyone knows about Roger Williams. But uh, I think one of the uh, unique contributions to this book is to give a prominent place to Thomas Helwes. And Helwes uh, was a, a contemporary, a little younger than, than Roger Williams, who had gone over to the Netherlands, and there there was a lot of ferment about religious freedom and liberty of conscience. And he came back to England because he wanted to support his fellow Baptists. Um, he was a founder of one of the Baptist, first Baptist churches in London, and he was put in prison, and then he died in prison. But he wrote a book called The Mystery of Iniquity. And uh, in that book, he sets forth the basic arguments that others had been presenting, including Roger Williams, namely that the civil authority had no authority over a person's conscience. And that the idea that religion has to do with where you were born, if you're born in German uh, principality that's Lutheran, you're Lutheran. If you're born in Italy, you're Catholic. And if you're born in England, you're Church of England. And Helwes is one of the first to cut through that. But what made him even more remarkable was that he realized that if you're going... He he didn't like the Catholics. He considered them idolaters. But he said, look, if you're going to give liberty of conscience to dissident Protestants, you have to give it to the Catholics as well, because the king has no authority over their consciences. And you have to give it to the Jews and to the Muslims. Yeah, remarkable, isn't it? It is remarkable. And, uh, you know... Five years ago, I had never heard of Thomas Helvis. <laughs> and so I was, I'm very pleased that I'm able to really give him some prominence. In fact, I, in my conclusion, he's the first person I mentioned. Yes. So wonderful treatment of the Baptists. And uh, yeah. Baptists don't know as much as we should about some of those figures like Thomas Helvis and uh, Merton, John Merton and others. John Merton and, and Busher. Yeah, stood with him. Uh, I don't know whether you ever had a chance to look at this book by this uh, Dutch scholar called Twisk, 
I discussed him. Twisk yes. was the one who put together the most extensive dossier of citations from earlier Christian writers on liberty of conscience and freedom of religion. And he had uh, an impact on John Merton, who put together a dossier, which then Roger Williams used. Right. Um, he's a very uh, obscure figure, but a very significant figure. And he's hard to get at because his book is not available. By, it's not in the Library of Congress, for example. It's only available in two libraries in this country. And it's in Dutch. Uh, and I, I thought because I knew German well, I could retouch, but I can't retouch. <laughs> not exactly the same. I discovered that myself. Uh, well, you, you've, we've used these two terms, religious freedom and liberty of conscience. Are they the same or is there a distinction? Well, the, they are not exactly the same. They are the ones that occur. Um, I'd say in general, liberty of conscience is uh, the more familiar term, the one that's used the most that one that comes in earliest. I mean, you get it already in the 16th century. Uh, and um, freedom of religion, then, is a more general term that begins to be used later on uh, mm-hmm. in the 17th century. And they have a different accent, because the one um, you know puts the, the stress on conscience, and the other on the, the phenomenon of religion. And uh, what I discovered writing this is that a good part of the debate on religious freedom has to do not with individuals' liberty of conscience, but it has to do with the rights of religious communities. Yeah. To actually practice their faith, which doesn't mean simply that they can worship in a way that's different from the official worship of the country or the territory, but that they can proselytize, they can organize, they they, they can care for their sick and their needy. Um, so it's, it's, I think, a very significant... In fact, one of the ways in which it, it comes in is the use of the term exercise of religion, as one Dutch writer says. It's not enough just to recognize liberty of conscience. You've got to recognize the right to have, to practice your religion, Mm. to exercise your religion. And that then becomes part of the normal verbiage that's, that's used for any writers on religious freedom. And that's important today, isn't it, because religious freedom is under threat under attack actually around the world in many different ways and it isn't simply a matter of individual right but of the right of a a group of faithful people exactly the difficulty as i have thought about this and as i've talked given talks about this book and had questions is i do not think there's any place within our jurisprudence for such an idea and I think that is a question that is going to have to be faced uh, in the coming decade, whether religious freedom or liberty of conscience actually uh, has a corporate dimension to it, because that's exactly what, you, what you're just saying. That's, that's mm. the form in which these things come today. Yeah. Nobody cares about a, a solitary uh, non-believer. That doesn't bother anybody. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, uh, Dr. Robert Lewis Wilkin. Uh, he is the William R. Keenan Professor Emeritus of the History of Christianity at the University of Virginia. 
uh, a wonderful scholar, a wonderful writer and thinker. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to know him in the context of our work together with evangelicals and Catholics together. Uh, and you are the president of the Institute uh, on Religion and Public Life, which sponsors that uh, dialogue. So thank you for your many contributions, and especially for this new book from Yale University Press, Liberty in the Things of God, The Christian Origins of Religious Freedom. It's a significant contribution to this important discussion today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Timothy. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.